Hey, how's everybody doing? This is Jamal Givens with LPKNC, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, really? I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. I'm there right now. <laughs> Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. One them on the Visceral Change Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Next episode of the chopping block. I am here with my guy, good friend, brother, the whole nine yards, Mr. Jamal Givens, AKA the president. Jamal, what's going on, baby? How you doing? Hey, doing well, doing well. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to uh, the conversation that we're about to get into. No doubt about it, man. Uh, you know, folks who are, are uh, fans, if you will, of the chopping block in our, our young phase as we are in currently, might remember Jamal from season one. Uh, you are currently my my first and only repeat guest, man, which I'm hey, excited okay. about. I'll, I'll I would it. I wouldn't want it to be anybody else, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, this was back in 2018, and we were in person at the time, and we were a little rough around the edges <laughs> with <laughs> camera work, you know, the whole nine. But you know, we we've evolved a little bit since then. Uh, at least we have. What's going on with you in the past three years, man? Uh, update us on your life, uh, personally, professionally, before we dive deep into some of the, the scripted questions. Last three years, man, since I've yeah. seen you on the shopping block, what's been new with you? Oh, man, just a lot, a lot going on, a lot of positivity, uh, definitely feeling blessed. Um, yeah, the uh, nonprofit organization that I had just started um, has been growing slowly but surely. Uh, we are now um, have some funding um about always helps yeah definitely not a yeah definitely keeps uh keeps the lights on you know right. uh, and um you know i think we're somewhere is about uh uh five hundred thousand dollars in awarded grants uh, at oh, this beautiful. point um just signed a lease for a space uh have incorporated five other staff um uh, so there's seven of us total now and so man it's just yeah it's been it's been crazy wow uh, a lot of learning um and growth and just blessings and, and helping the youth helping and the youth man the community that's what it that's what it's all about for me that's exactly what it's all about man the, and the the tune hasn't changed much and we're gonna jump into that a little bit more um jamal by the way folks is the president uh well he's a ceo of lpk and c and the president of the board as well so he's yes. he's covering a lot of different bases and his nonprofit prevention work that we're really going to dive into um, shortly. But before we get into that, man, I always like to begin, for folks who may not know you, some of my listeners who haven't uh, gotten the full breadth of what DEI looks like across the board and might be first introduced to you in the name of prevention, let's talk a little bit about your upbringing, just a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, you you actually come to, to, to the world, perspective-wise, with a little bit of an international experience. You, sp you spent a considerable amount of time, at least in your formative years, in Saudi Arabia. That's true. Talk about that experience, man, how it helped set the stage for who you are and um, maybe what you took from that experience as you came back to the States full time and so on and so forth. Yeah, when we look at it from a diversity lens, I, I feel extremely uh, uh, blessed. And, 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 you know, I just put it out there a lot of times for folks that I, I'm a privileged Black man mm. um, due to some of the challenges that... Um, uh, my father chose to accept, um, and my mother also in, in wanting to do something that was off the beaten path, which is to, to move overseas. Um, and so I was born in LA, Inglewood, California. Um, both of my parents are military, Air Force, uh, retired, and um, living in LA. My parents were young and partying and having a good time and doing their thing. And, um, you know, they had a house. Uh, that was right across from a park, and um, that's when gangs, uh, you know, were beginning to come come up and about. And um, as my dad began to see uh, this element moving into the community, he just felt that it wasn't safe uh, for him to raise his family any longer. And so he, uh, you know, used his connections um, through the military to to get a job uh, overseas uh, in Saudi Arabia. And um, my dad's a photoscience engineer. And he learned his trade from from the Air Force, yeah. uh, the beginnings of, and he just uh, you know used that to 
to find other opportunities and overseas was something that he was very interested in doing. Uh, so uh, both of my parents are African-American or black. <laughs> um, my, my dad from Philly, mom from Roanoke, Virginia. And so, nice. um, yeah, we moved to Saudi, man, when I was a, a youngin, man, uh, like six, seven years old. Oh, wow. And it was, uh, even then, it was uh, a, a culture shock because, you know, it was just totally different. I mean, you know, being in the U.S. and having things that were, um, how would you say, uh, just put together, I could just tell it was difference. Sure. Um, and when we moved to Saudi, uh, we lived uh, downtown in, in Dahran, Saudi Arabia. And um, it was just these high walls, nice uh, homes um, in, the, in the city. And it was just different, man, like marble floors and- Were you on base? No, 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 this was oh. just, no, we were just part of the in company's, the city. Uh, yeah. Solid. Um, housing, if you will, you know, houses that they bought throughout the, the city in the beginning, our first time there. Gotcha. And so I could just tell it was, it was just different, man. Um, you know, it wasn't the the malls and glossiness and smooth. It was, yeah, it was, I don't even know how to put words to it. It was just almost like, um, I don't know, man, like sometimes you see in the movies now, like in Iraq and Iran and things like that. Right. Um, because in Saudi Arabia, you have the very wealthy and you have the very poor. Um, there is really no in between. You'll find that and in many so, countries. Yeah, right. And so, here, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, living downtown, I got to intermingle with the Saudi kids um, and learn soccer, played soccer all the time outside in the streets and, and all that. And so, um, you know, through my years um, there, went to, I went to school actually on the, uh, uh, the American consulate. Um, and that's where I did my, you know, K through, I think it was K through four, K through, yeah, K through two. Um, and that was an experience. I mean, you know, going, driving on the uh, American uh, consulate base, and if you will, and, you know, having to go through security guards all the time. And right. uh, there was other American uh, Americans that were going to school there. So that was cool. Right. Um, and then um, we ended up leaving um, Saudi Arabia. And then we went back to Atlanta uh, for a year or two. Um, and my how dad- old you, How old were you here? Uh, so yeah, when I came back to Atlanta, uh, I was, uh, fourth grade, I think okay. I just at the tail end of third grade and then jumped Coming into in fourth later. grade. Yep. Yeah. So it was just for like about a, about a year, year and a half, we were back in the States. My dad was just recalibrating because the company he was with, uh, you know, had gotten to some, uh, some challenges. And so he was like, ah, let's go back right. to the States, recalibrate. And then, um, so yeah, living in Atlanta was a huge culture shock for me even being that young because uh, then because when I was in Saudi I was with predominantly all white people sure um so and and then in Saudi Arabia I'm with all predominantly uh, uh actually when I'm in the, my community I'm with Saudis but when I'm at school I'm with white people. oh got it okay yeah so like there's yeah. like this trying to learn the culture trying to understand how things are moving and working and, and when I get to it was it Pardon? just you for black folks? Um, that you recall? That first one, yes. Yeah, the, the first stint of my educational years, right. it was. And then uh, coming to Atlanta, I ended up going to public school, which was, you know, predominantly black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I'm like, hmm, all right, this is interesting. Then I was in College Park. Uh, so some of the listeners out there may know College Park. Um, and so this was like, yeah, uh, late, late 70s, 80s or whatever. And so um, a lot of black folks were living in that particular community. Um, that's that's who was being built for. Right. And so, uh, yeah, that was an experience. I mean, went to the, uh, during summer camp, there was one summer I was out there at the YMCA and man, it was rough. I mean, I, I learned how to fight. Uh, <laughs> right. And how to, you know, protect oneself and, um, you know, learned about the, you know, jonesing on each other and talking about your mama and had to learn all that because that didn't happen. Uh, in no, <laughs> which is which is interesting, right? <laughs> because <clears throat> I wanted to ask this question, but as you were talking, I have to imagine that maybe you just weren't old enough to be able to to consider it from this perspective. But as, even as you reflect now, even, you know, 
James Baldwin, as we all know, was my historical idol. Uh, you know, he, he would he said essentially he went to France in 1948 to to figure out essentially if he was James Baldwin or if he was a black man named James Baldwin. Mm. See what I'm saying? He, and he, mm-hmm. Because he was getting one thing here in the U.S. He was a black dude first, right. James Baldwin second. He went to France to really identify, you know, am I a man or am I a black man? And, and, right. and what does that mean? And so I, I guess my question to you is, to the best of your ability, you were young. Right. You know, did, did, did you see the sort of that element of, of racism, classism, separation in general in Saudi in the way that you saw in Atlanta or, or have later on seen it in life? No, I think that um, not definitely in the beginning, but the okay. second time that we went back after leaving, uh, it, it, you know, going back to Saudi, leaving Atlanta. Okay. I mean, being in Atlanta, I definitely knew that there was a little bit of a difference in, in being black um, and just felt it. Um, but then going back to Saudi, kind of forgot about it the second time. Um, we went to, uh, my dad got a job with a company called Saudi Aramco, okay. which is the largest producing oil company in the world, even still today. And um, that was a, an experience. And so um, an experience, a positive one in that it was, I mean, the best of the best, man. I mean, I, I was going to school on Mercedes buses. Oh, wow. I was, yeah, I was, um, we had Olympic sized pools. We had professional soccer fields, baseball diamonds. Um, yeah, it was, it was crazy, man. It was a, it was a lifestyle that, and that's why I say I'm privileged. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and it was only probably, uh, um, I mean, I know all of them. I still keep in touch with them today. Five black families uh, that were there and we're all still, um, you know, boys today. Um, literally just got so, off the text with them recently. Nice. But it was good. It was good. So even then, and that's in that space, <clears throat> excuse me, that you've identified as privilege, you still recognize blackness in, in some way, shape or form. Um, to what degree? Uh, and, and to what degree? Yeah. So I think when we were there, and this gets back to your your your, your uh, earlier question a little bit, in that it was around sixth grade that we began um, realizing that we were black, mm. and so um, the reason being was one of my buddies, um, homeboys, he was interested in a in a girl that we we've been kicking it with for you know a couple of years or whatever, right. and her parents were. Uh, her dad, who happened to be military, white guy, was like, you can't date him. Oh, wow. And we were kind of like, hey. you know, what? Why? Like, and that's when we began to realize that we were different, um, even in Saudi. But again, notice I said that that was a a, a, a Caucasian gentleman. I'm about to say that, yeah. That's, that's older, right? Who's older. Mm. Because for us, the kids, we didn't... We were, it was a melting pot. So I went to school with people from Britain. Uh, yeah, there were, there were Britain, people that were uh, uh, Pakistani, Indians, Dominican. I mean, there's only like three Dominicans, but uh, they were there. The people of color. Uh, but, and then, um, you know, uh, I, Irish, Italian, but the kids, we just felt like we were all in a, a unique situation that we had to bond together. I mean, now looking on it, that was our experience. And so right. color didn't play a role um, in that. And so when that hit, because of an older person bringing that into our our culture of youthfulness was like, wait a minute. Like, right. And the other thing that was interesting too was that we had a homeboy that came in from um, Connecticut um, and he was new. So he came in when he was a uh, seventh grade, sixth to seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And he brought with him uh, hip hop and R&B because in Saudi, we weren't getting all that. Oh. And he understood and was listening to a lot of that music and what it meant. And he was, uh, again, well-educated. Um, parents had money, um, but they came over to Saudi. But then he began to, you know, kind of educate us a little bit like, oh uh, yeah, y'all black. I mean, you ain't acting like y'all black. <laughs> and we're like, what you mean acting like we black? I mean, how, you, how you do that? Like, right, we're, right. we're just being us. Come in. And, uh, 
So it was uh it was really eye-opening at that time, just you know, due to those experiences that you began to see that you were different. But what's really interesting though is in Saudi, I never felt in my family, never felt or the black families that we were outsiders within Saudi. The Saudis embraced us, mm. black people. Mm. They we would get treated differently in a positive way than the white people that were there working for the company. Interesting. Extremely interesting. Extremely interesting. I've heard that. I've heard that before in in North African Middle Eastern countries. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't had that experience. I haven't haven't been there, but I've heard that narrative before. I'd be interested to dig in, uh, you know. And it doubles off of what you mentioned earlier. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I think it was in Uber one day. I feel like I was in LA. I think and and a black dude was driving, and we were talking. He and I, I think I was. I was talking about some international trip and he told me about a time he was in either Greece, I think it was in Greece, actually. Um, and he was, or Italy, he was talking about how he experienced racism out there, but the racism didn't come from, you know, the, the, the Greeks or the, or the Italians, wherever he was at, it, it came from the Americans who were there. Right. <laughs> right. And so yeah. you're talking about the racism you experienced by the white dude, I'm assuming was, was American yeah, possibly, right? He was. And, and, he was. Right, that's where the racism comes from, and, and so the the racism as we know it today is so uniquely American. I mean, it's not taken away from the fact that it's a global, it's right. the original global pandemic, at least in the context of the U.S. But it's 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 so you the way it hits is so uniquely American that it's powerful and, and pronounced for you to say that even over in Saudi, the, the racism you experienced didn't come from from mm -hmm. the the folks indigenous to the land, but the white folks who brought it over from America. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and through my travels, what's interesting is, I mean, I think there's also a socioeconomic uh, uh, piece to it. So um, because they knew the type of money we were making, we mm -hmm. were, don't get me wrong, not necessarily on, on all of the royal family's echelon no. of money. Elon but Musk. as far as the working class, I mean, we were, we were there. And so with them at that level, so they didn't, we were just, we were brothering i mean because our skin tone was closer yeah, um right because when i think about when you're talking about other cultures um and, and countries i have heard about racism uh you know because if you're dark more dark complected yeah. you know what i'm saying that oh, yeah. that's there but i think that's more from my yeah. perspective in my travel socioeconomic um okay. not just right off the bat because sure. of skin color um now we can talk about right how they ended up there, you know, right. being lower <laughs> because of mm. like, who they look but, like, right? Um, it, 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 yeah, it just didn't, it wasn't there for me, man. I mean, I, I felt safe, I felt protected, um, more so from them, the Saudis, than I, I did, uh, you know, white counterparts. I, I, I did not feel out of place being downtown or amongst them. Um, there definitely was a cultural difference. I mean, you know. They say that black people are loud and stuff, but they're they're really loud, <laughs> Saudis, <laughs> and they're very Having expressive. A good time. They're very expressive. I mean, and they they love hard. Um, they they're compassionate. They're um, I mean, all the things that we see, you know, in the media, is not necessarily like true. You yeah. know, what I mean, and that's war so. times, right? But if you look at them as a people, and even and and this will be interesting too to share. I, I believe is the company which is Saudi owned and run has things in place that show that they truly believe in family. Um, and, you know, when you look at their policies and procedures, you had to be home. My dad had to be home and leave work at five o'clock. He had to go home and eat with, with his family. Sure. They wow. would not allow you not to do that. You had to take vacation with your family mm. every year. They would not allow for that not to happen. Wow. They put policies in place to protect and support family. And so when I, it's interesting for me being an American and being in the U.S. and hearing how we have these family values in America, but yet none of the policies right. within organizations yes. or institutions actually support that. 
And matter right. of fact, it pushes against it. <laughs> well, how come they're not at work? My, my kid's sick. Right, like, right. Be at and work. It, no, get somebody else to. It's... And it's groundbreaking, right? When it when it is there, like, oh wow, this is a wonderful policy you have. You get, I get, I get, you know, uh, it's twelve hours. You mean away? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> right. Yeah, it just interesting. Yeah, but very interesting, man. Yeah, just just the the and and being able to have traveled the world. I mean, I, I've been to uh, Costa Rica. I've been to Malaysia. I've been to Singapore. Um, been to France, uh, I've been to uh, Amsterdam, I've been to Vienna. And, and to, to, to see, especially as I began to get older and recognize myself as a Black man, um, how people perceived me in different cultures. Right. Um, and I think your point is well taken, is that a lot of the stuff, and even when I came back to the U.S. Um, and you know went to boarding school, I went to boarding school in Vermont, the whitest state in America. And and the perception of me as a black man there is all due to media that the U.S. pushes out, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how a black person may be perceived. And the reason I know this is because of the way people, some people in certain countries, um, would address me. And it was addressed me, they would address me by the what they saw on media from the US. Right, of course. Yes. Does yes, that make sense? That's, that's part of my workshops. Yeah, and it's crazy, right? Cause I'm like, cause, and the thing that's interesting is I didn't know of a lot of the references when they would address me in a certain way because I hadn't been in the US. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, makes sense. So then when I make the connection when I was in the US to how certain people had addressed me, I'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. ooh, this is the US doing this. Yes. And that makes me feel some type of way. Yeah. You know? Now, how long was your second stint? Uh, so the second stint was um, 20, 22 years. In Saudi, yep. In Saudi, okay. yeah. Gosh, yeah, yeah. Twenty-two years. So the first year was uh, I think two to three years, mm-hmm. and again left when I was a uh, seven, seven, eight, and then we came back uh, nine, ten uh, around there, and then just stayed until wow. uh, ten years ago. Now I think it's ten years now, twelve years. Wow, amazing, man. Um, let me ask you. Uh, Wow. No, we can, so we can run on that for a while. Let me pause on that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that experience is something uh, that I think a lot of folks would want to dig in a little bit more, <clears throat> especially when you start talking about media representation. I mentioned doing that in my workshops and my systems of socialization workshop, really talking about how, you know, if you can control someone's narrative right, in, in their image, you've pretty much already won the battle, essentially. Yep. And, yep. and that that was beautifully uh, eloquated when you stated that. Um all right, let's jump into, let's shift gears a little bit uh, and jump into a little bit of the work. As I mentioned before, you were on in season one. This was a couple mm-hmm. of years back. Um, on that particular episode, you were representing yourself, JamalGibbons.com, mental health right. educator, and you were kind of just talking about hitting the ground running, opening up some different doors and, and some of the importance of, of working with youth advocacy and, and prevention. Fast forward three years, here we are again, president and CEO, LPKNC, right? There's this nice growth that came with it. Talk a little bit more about what LPKNC is, what y'all do. Uh, and then I'd, I'd be interested to know if there are any similarities to what you you did uh, when yeah. I saw you on the chopping block three years back. Yeah, no, definitely. The um, So LPKNC uh, used to stand for uh, two coalition, Liberty Partnership and Kino Neighborhoods Council. Okay. There were two coalitions that had come together to merge um, and become one in 20, 2011, 2012. Uh, it took some time for the two coalitions to, to uh, you know, come up with a name and uh, work through the details. Right. <laughs> so um, that's why I would say 2011, 2012, because, yeah, it just took a little while. Right. Um, but we became one. And so the, the, the short of it was name ended up just being LPKNC. Now with those coalitions, of course, and from different neighborhoods that were on the same side of town and divided by a street, a very major uh, uh, artery, if you will, um, they 
um, yeah, decided to come together and, and work, you know, do the same, cause they were doing similar work, but it was due to funding that split them. Um, and I was working on, on one, one side of the, uh, the, the highway, if you will, and a, a colleague and really great friend of mine and close friend um, on the other side, Diana mm-hmm. Hendricks Young. And we were always collaborating through the years. And so uh, we were all both working, excuse me, we were both working on our coalitions, working on youth substance uh, abuse prevention, um, school dropout, violence, delinquency. Um, and then we're also working on suicide prevention work, which is really around mental health. And mm-hmm. so like I said, in 2011, 2012, we came together, um, the coalitions, and they began to uh, just work as one. Um, and again, this was all triggered by funding um, and, and what we had and didn't have. And so uh, my partner in crime, uh, Diana, um, the, her funding began to, began to dwindle even more so. And so ended up um, backing out altogether. And she ended up getting a job with a... a, a a college institution here. Um, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, mm-hmm. and um, working there. And so I carried forward the work with the coalition, and um, working with youth again, uh, maintaining the relationship with families and community. Because one of the things that we believe is that, you know, you can't help youth without helping the family. Right. Yep. You know, because a lot of times, uh, what parents will have us do is say, hey, come fix my child is basically right. what they're saying. Mm. But the the crux of it all is you have to- You got to go home I, at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, here I am taking the youth. And the reason, and, and this became so true to me, uh, Sherard, man, um, I, I worked as a, a senior residential counselor as a, as a, at a residential facility. Mm. And these youth would come in for 30 days. And I would work with them and my team would work with them. We'd have a uh, structure. I mean, they lived um, in a house with us. We had a pool, um, you know, we had them doing chores. Uh, we'd have, you know, uh, groups um, throughout the day. I would take them out to play basketball. I'd take them out shopping mm-hmm. for food for the house and showing them how to do that. Uh, we had, you know, movie nights we had, you know, in the house or we'd take them out to movies and they would do amazing in this yeah. structure, right? It would do amazing in this structure. Um, I mean, and lot, some of them had anger issues, some of them had depression, some had anxiety, some had, you know, in addition to the substance use, but a lot of them were medic, self-medicating. Right, um, right. And they do amazing um, because they knew what to expect. We, you know, we were clear with our expectations. Routines. Um, yeah, what, what they need to take care of, how they need to do it. Mm-hmm. Then as soon as they leave the program and go back home, um, the thing is, is, and this was our bad, right, is we did not have sessions with the parents on fully what we were doing and what they could do within change within their environment. So when this child got home, they could have something maybe similar. And again, it doesn't have to be necessarily as, as, as strict or structured, but some type of structure. Because oh. a lot of the kids that we were dealing with, they were saying that they would go go back home and you know, mom would still be out doing ABC or dad might be doing this, or it might be a single parent home or that single parents bringing home, you know, boyfriends. And, and so there was no, no no structure. And so, um, you know, looking at that, um, realizing that in order for us to work with youth, we have to work with family. And in order for us to work with families, we also have to take a look at the environment that the community has. So what are some of the uh, community norms that exist? Does our community allow, and this is anybody out there, you know, does your community allow uh, for for drinking of youth as if though it's not a problem? Smoking of marijuana is not a problem for youth. Um, And this could be exhibited um, by when parents are holding parties that are supposed to be for, you know, teenagers or middle schoolers or junior highs, but yet you got alcohol flowing all through the party for the adults. And it's like, you know what? Y'all can hold off for like, you know, two hours. Until the party's over, right? Yeah, and then do your adult thing. This is not the time to do that. Because kids Um, are, because you're arguing that kids are seeing this, right? They're soaking it up. Because they're seeing it and and then they're associating with it with having a good time and, and having to party, 
you have to have alcohol, marijuana, gotcha, whatever that's, other that's drugs message. might be yeah. flowing. You know, yeah. you know. I think we can uh, role model that. You know, at a kid's party because you guys are underage. That and it's illegal some substances. Um, and I know some are more legal now today than before. But sure, that you don't need it necessarily for this instance. Um, and so anyway, they, um, so yeah, so us work, LP can see is really focused on, on, on doing uh, that type of work. And so when you were asking about how does JG Enterprises uh, fold into this is, it's the same work. I'm just focused more now through this nonprofit on a particular area. Yep. Um, and so I'm doing the same thing. I'm not doing as much um, keynote speaking um, and going to conferences and, and speaking and things of that nature. I'm more just focused now on uh, you know south side of town yes um, and then also wanted to expand that a little bit bigger um in other areas of of uh, pima county and again i'm in tucson arizona mm -hmm. but um jg enterprises is not dead um it, once i get this kind of established and what i mean by established is somewhat stable to be able to pass on to somebody else um perhaps from the community right. to carry it forward i'm then gonna um, go back to, um, you know, doing what I feel is my, my, my work that I need to do nationwide right. and internationally. Right. Which was actually going to be one of my questions. So I'm glad you got there. Um, we'll pause on that then. Maybe we can expand on that more in detail a little bit, but I want to pause on that because I was curious to know if you had a mind to go a little bit broader, but let's, let's stay where we are. Um, you focused, you mentioned that you focus on south side of tucson um which for folks who don't know is sort of that area of the city for most folks where you don't go you know if you haven't come up in uh the projects if you have these stereotypes in your head um that's that element that's that that's that flint michigan that detroit that Harlem, new york you know that that image that people want to place on these particular communities mm -hmm. right and and undeservingly of course but they're also underserved areas of of a larger city right and they they uh, gain reputations as a result of, of systemic inequities that sort of breed them to be what they are, right? And that would be for a larger conversation. But Jamal focuses on this community because this community needs the attention in ways that we have the foothills here in Tucson, the, a little bit more of an affluent neighborhood, doesn't need that same kind of service. Not that stuff isn't going on, but the South Side, if Jamal's not paying attention to him, then who will? Uh, that being said, um, have you witnessed and I may have asked you this in season one. Um, so at the risk of repeating myself, have you witnessed or identified any trends in terms of social identity groups who are most impacted um, as a result of, or to say in the work that you do, um, most affected by, by um, society, black and brown folks, uh, uh, in particular, Latino folks, uh, specific race or, or other races, specific genders, have you seen trends pop up as you are doing the work that you're doing with your team? Yeah, so when we look at, um, again, substance use and misuse and mental health and wellness, um, we definitely see trends and the subculture that I would say we see trends in is with, within young people. Um, and that's across the board. Um, white, black, Latinx, um, and so it I, like again subculture of youth is what I, I, I would say. Uh, we see some trends. If we were to drill deeper, uh, I think when we're seeing challenges with substance use and misuse at a higher level um, and mental health issues as far as anxiety, depression, um, I would say that you would see that with an LGBTQIA group. Um, uh, more so, again, marginalized groups, uh, that being a marginalized group, I should say. Sure. Um, but, you know, I want to I go back to one point that you said earlier real quick, is that, um, you know, in, in more affluent areas, and because I've been raised through and with afflu affluent communities and people, they have similar issues. The difference is, is that uh, they hide them more well. And the reason being is because their walls are a little bit higher um, and uh, 
police don't patrol those areas as much. Mm. School districts don't talk about it as much. School mm. districts won't even test about it. Wow. Um, yes. So we don't have enough information sometimes. But I do because they came through my programs mm -hmm. uh, when I was a uh, I was a director of prevention intervention and and done some therapy with youth and they came also through our residential program. Sure, there were there were people of all different walks of life, and of so course. when it comes to trying to get grants to help more affluent communities, uh, and this is a, a systematic issue or problem, mm -hmm. is that they won't fund those particular areas um but they have those youth those youth have just as much challenges um i know they, private they, won't, schools, they won't fund those areas because the research isn't there right well because when you do you know, when you look at some of the data right as far as like uh what's the um what's the income level of this particular area um right. what are uh you know what are some of the blemishes within the community or you know, like you say, you look at a particular um, right. community and you see it. In more affluent communities, everything looks nice. Right, yeah. But what we don't know is what's happening in those houses behind those closed doors. Mm -hmm. And those schools look extremely nice, but that's what they want to do is have this image as though everything is perfect, as well as private schools. Again, you got to remember, you're talking to a man who's been to uh, multiple uh, and visited multiple private schools because of the friends that I've had. Sure. And seeing the drugs that they get into. And even here in Pima County, um, you know, visiting the majority of the schools here because I worked uh, at them through University of Arizona. Right. I, mean, I was working with youth that were having problems across the board. So I just want to make sure that the, the group understands that. And I think you, you were stating it, but I want to make sure it's loud and clear is that. Of course. All youth. Um, and any area uh, could have challenges. And of so course. it's just that, you know, some school districts are more cautious about their image than actually the well-being of their youth. And so what's interesting about where I'm working with this particular school district is they understand that, and I hope people can hear this, is that a school is not a reflection of um, the students themselves, but more so a reflection of the community in which they're in. So what I mean by that is people will be like, you know, oh man, that school has a drug problem. No, the community does. Because where are these kids getting the drugs from? Mm. From the community. Mm. The school's not selling those drugs. Um, yeah, this, we're in, if you make the argument that students... Um, are selling it on the campus. Yeah, but where are they getting it from? Mm. So this becomes more of a community issue than it does a school. The school gets the bad rap because, you know, you're putting 800, 1,000, 3,000 students in there in this, uh, in one space so we mm -hmm. can find out and see really what is going on. But what's mm -hmm. going on is not the school's problem. It's a community problem. And a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to uh, own up to that. Right. No, that's a, that's um, a good point. You know, when you look at domestic violence or aggressions that are happening in school campuses, where are they learning that from? They're not learning that from the school. They're learning that they're bringing that they're bringing that in from outside. Right. So we have to then go outside of those school gates and say, OK, what's happening? But the thing is, we don't know what's happening. Right. Because we can't necessarily see beyond that front door or through that garage door of what's really happening every day and every night. And so um, when we talk about, yeah, just, um, you know, what are we seeing? Um, and is there any particular groups that we see more of? Um, I, I'm gonna say no other than LGBTQIA. Um, and in my community, because it's 90% uh, Latinx, I mean, I'm gonna see that more. Um, uh, also refugee population, mm -hmm. uh, which we have a small, you know, they're trying to, to, to figure out their footing. And then that's the other sad piece too, is, you know, this American way sometimes, especially when we talk about substance use and misuse, um, you know, they pick up on those, 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 um, what would you say? Those ways of handling things, you know, I mean, we got liquor stores all throughout, you know, our County. 
and you know it's saying well use this and then the commercials right and then instagram and then tick saying use these substances to deal with this issue right as opposed to what we're trying to teach which is there are other alternative coping strategies to deal with issues that you're having in your life and going to the bottle or even the marijuana at a young age um, or cocaine is not the answer um, right. to deal with your depression and we can debate right whether using pharmaceuticals uh, you know big big pharma and all that we can debate about that um but even without using those there's still some natural things that you could do like walking jogging exercising meditation being mindful positive thinking um journaling drawing rapping uh poetry right so many other things that we don't support in our society we say no take a pill and or hit the bottle or hit a j right um as opposed to all these other things so yeah um sorry that was a lot <laughs> no yeah, yeah no you, you you covered a few things there and i you know it's so uh, quick question i have i'm gonna double back on it do you do you all keep data at all in terms of like uh identity breakdown race ethnicity gender etc lgbtq yeah <laughs> I, I, I ask only because I, it, it, I don't know what the data is, but I would find it interesting if you, because Tucson, the majority demographic is Latino. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I would find it interesting uh, if, if the majority of youth you come across when you break that down are, are either Latino or white or what have you, if the data represents that and what message that sends in terms of of the community of which you speak about, you know, I, I recognize for sure that the youth, um, if we're talking about, in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, diversity and age, right, the youth are stand up, especially if you're doing youth prevention work, for sure. Yeah. Uh, systemically, um, you know, and also in relation to what we were just talking about, uh, without a doubt, there are these issues that occur in the more affluent neighborhoods. But an, an element to that as well are, are the resources that these folks have. Right. I mean, this is there's no secret when you think Period. about past you know, Nixon, you know, uh, Reagan administrations, where you know there's a reason why crack cocaine is is at least at this particular point in time, back then was punished in a, in a, a much more severe way than cocaine okay. was, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Uh, because one was in the white neighborhoods and more accessible, they were one was in the black neighborhoods, and it it was a systematic effort to disenfranchise. And organizations like yours being present in places like the Harlem's, right, and 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 even some of the projects in Boston, where I'm from, where the, you know the, the state I'm in, in come from, Massachusetts, and you know the perception of Southside Tucson, right? The reason why there's so much energy focused there is because the resources are not in as much in abundance as they are in like the foothills or some of the affluent neighborhoods here in Tucson or other places. Um, and, you know, there, there needs to be accountability somewhere at the systemic level to begin to adjust that. We need, whether it means dropping those walls that you talked about a little bit in the affluent areas so they can get the help that they need, or providing more resources to the areas that don't have the walls as high and then making something a little more uniform to say this is an issue across the board and we need to address it. Um, and, and so I'd be interested sometime down the road if we ever get to that place, right, of, of seeing what, what the statistics look like uh, for you all because that is something that uh, that stands out to me. And, and it, it would also make sense that right, uh, when we start adding on different layers like uh, you talked about mental health and depression and suicide uh, which are, which all are very prominent within the LGBTQ community. So it makes sense why you would mention that particular group as well as, as a community you see often in the work that you do. Yeah, uh, I think that the, um, yeah, 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 just, just briefly yeah, is that, yeah, I think something you had mentioned a lot earlier. I mean, there definitely are some, um, you know, not social justice issues um, and, the resources not being there for particular communities to 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 help them and so i can understand in, in one breath why um, there is more money that flows to particular communities and i think it's needed and, and necessary but I, I think i want to be careful in allowing me and i appreciate you allowing me the opportunity 
to take control of this narrative, you know, in this conversation <laughs> in that um, I, I, I get nervous when people do look at data, but don't look at it the way that you do. And what I mean by that is they could look at the data and be like, yep, see, all those black people and, yeah, and Mexicans or Latin folks, yeah. yep, they got the problem, but they don't back it up with then. But why is that? It's not within context. Right, right. And so then they keep us, then they take that narrative and then continue to hold uh, you know, us people of color down, but not realizing, well, there's a there's not as many resources going there. Therefore, that's that's the challenge. And it's again not that it's not happening in the more affluent communities that right. they have more resources to to so for example when they uh, go to get counseling and therapy they don't go to the major um, providers right. uh, big companies that you know everybody they go to independent yeah and so the independent therapist doesn't keep the type of data that a big mill. Uh, right therapy behavioral health center does mm -hmm. right and so again resources to, to your yeah. point exactly yeah i think it's, it's yeah i and I, I wish i hope and i think that's what you and i are doing and even when we've talked offline and other people that we work with is let's make sure they understand this other piece and this is what yeah. you're doing i have a buddy back east who uh is a therapist and i've been trying to get him on the chopping block forever if he uh I think we just we need a, a little bit more time and then we can get him on here. Hopefully the pressure's on him. Uh, I don't want to name drop, but I will. Um, he says something similar. You know, he he wants to open up a private practice in a way that's accessible to the underserved um, because awesome. most folks have only have access to these larger conglomerates who have consortiums in play. But whereas the more affluent folks are, you know, accessing some of these more private and independent mm -hmm. entities that they can kind of say, here's what I want and, and, and nothing else. He wants to create that space for the folks to have That's similar awesome. resources, right? So so I, I recognize that. Um, you talked a little bit about the youth, of course, um, being the, a, a, a pretty central piece of, of the work that you do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you've also worked with folks for many years at this point in time. And we know that some of the issues you work you work on behalf of are not relegated specific to one age group. So in, in your journeys, uh, what are some of the generational differences you found in the work that you do with, you know, say Gen Xers or mm. millennials or even Generation Z? Um, does each group receive help differently? Do they approach abuse differently? Uh, what have you seen there? Yeah, no, great question. You know what, man, we're really in this um, in this this space, and I think COVID accelerated it. And it, you know, everybody's saying COVID is extremely bad, which it is. I mean, the actual virus itself, right, and killing people, definitely bad, 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 bad. But some of the things that it has uh, made us do as a society, um, uh, nation, the world. Um, it's accelerated some things like remote learning, you know, you and I doing this here now when we could be together, but it's a little bit more, um, uh, you know, easier to, hey, let me jump on Zoom, right? Um, you know, remote working, like I said, and then, um, but what we did find out is how, how important connectedness is. Um, and what I find interesting as I'm talking with youth and even parents, um, people that you and I, uh, you know, have engaged with too, and you look at the news and people not necessarily wanting to go back to work because they're like, hold on, I can do what I was doing. Um, my own couch. My house, right? <laughs> right? Like, hold up. Yeah. Um, and then I can still be connected in finding some other activities or that activities that I would normally have done after work I could still do those but not necessarily have to go to this building and so I think we're beginning to see when I say talking about connectedness also is that the youth realize how important connectedness is in in um you know the school um I think adults were re recognizing that also like wait a minute we, we need this to happen and so the difference that I'm seeing is that some of the old guard, if you will, older heads are, you know, rushing to um, 
um, go back to status quo. Um, I'm noticing the younger workers are like, whoa, hold up. I got a choice here a little bit, that a choice that I can make as far as my work-life balance. Um, and I'm choosing me over you and your bottom line. Right. Um, so that's what I'm noticing a little bit. Um, and on the employment side, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's kind of like what you're noticing on the employment side, right? Uh, it seems like, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and working with teachers, uh, what I've realized is, and I mean, this is a shout out to teachers. You, I hope people understood what they have been going through for years, which I've known, um, because if you had to be a, if you're an adult on here and have kids and you had to teach your kids, well, imagine you were teaching two of your kids if you had two or one. Mm -hmm. they're dealing with 30 yeah right you were having a hard time with one or two yeah mm -hmm. and here's the thing that we don't realize and i've been going into schools and talking to uh the schools that i work with i've been really harping on the idea that we got to take we got to help teachers remember to take care of themselves if they don't take care of their mental health how can they help the youth right and so um they're just so used to giving of themselves that they sometimes forget about themselves. And that's not beneficial to them teaching our youth um, because that's when those things can occur that shouldn't occur, bad decisions, uh, you know, acting on impulse negatively, um, you know, snap, snatching a kid up, <laughs> right. of their neck. Um, right. And so when you talk about just generational differences, um, I think what I'm noticing is that the younger generation, Gen Z, will begin to make some different decisions that us older folk, um, not necessarily me, because hey, I'm young at heart, you know, so <laughs> I'm, I'm with them, I'm with them, but it's going to do differently moving forward. Um, they, they, they are wanting to take care of their mental health, especially after COVID-19, and they're looking for the resources to do so. Um, and they don't see it as weak. Um, they see it as something that is important, but it's us having to work with the older millennials and uh, Gen X to be like, hey, this is important. Because like, if you think of like, a lot of businessmen and women, that own these Fortune 500 or even mid companies, right? They're having a hard time buying into this whole mental health idea. Mm -hmm. And it's because, you know, I think it's a mistake that we made through the years of not addressing it. I mean, they did a great job, many businesses of looking at physical health. Hey, let's put these, you know, hey, let's walk at lunch and, you right. know, let's, yeah. let's give you a pedometer and let's, you know, this, that, and the other. But nobody looked at, you got to take care of your mind too, yeah. mentally and yeah. mental breaks and right. you know things of that nature. And so those are some of the differences that I, I, I'm seeing right. is that it's a tougher sell for the older generation, not as much for the younger. Problem mm -hmm. is, is that we don't have enough resources to accommodate everybody. And so the, when you're saying a, a partner of yours who may come on here, man, let him know that I... He should just jump and do it. This is an awesome time to make that happen because it's so needed. I mean, I don't know how it is for others in their communities that are listening, but we have a shortage of social workers. Yeah. yeah, yeah There's yeah. a shortage of psychiatrists throughout the nation. Right. Um, there's a shortage of therapists. Um, and so as this becomes something more norm to get support and therapy is not a bad word. You know, there's some high profile, uh, you know, um, influencers out there from Charlemagne the God yeah. to athletes, right? Mm -hmm. That are talking about this now. And it's like, yeah. how come we haven't talked about this board? So, I, you know, I give a hand clap to uh, anybody and everybody that's willing to talk about it. And when we talk about um, diversity, it, in the uh, Black community, in the Latinx community, it is gonna be a harder hill to climb for us to talk about it 
-hmm. but we need to get more people on the front lines to talk about it because um, I think if we drag our feet on it, it's gonna, it could be another just, just challenge that we'll be behind in when we have an opportunity to be in front with it. And even when we talk about black men and brown men, not talking about emotions and right. feelings right. and we got to shake all that um and i think you talk about this actually sherard is a uh, you know the masculine to uh, toxicity mm -hmm. um you know we that's that has not done us any favors mm. <laughs> mm. right it has right. not and i know it's tough I, being a black man my father showed emotion but probably not enough i've learned through the years i'm trying to get even better at it myself i've right. taught my son you know what i'm saying we could talk about anything and his emotions and me not call him weak or you know this that or the other right. um and you and i talked about sherrard also but i think those are some of the things we talk about generationally that we need to take a look at uh for us to um you know just gain some ground um, right. on right. and not being behind on this right that makes sense yeah um yeah, for sure. There's a, a lot to unpack there as well. Um, let me, let me, let me see. You mentioned a lot there about the generational component as it pertained to sort of employment and, and the way it's perceived in that way. Another way that I was thinking of in terms of this question was um, with respect to, and if you've seen it in your experience, or if you, if you know what the research and the data says, or whatever the case is, but the communities with whom you work that are various generations, again, you know, boomers, not not really boomers necessarily, but Xers, millennials, Z, when it comes to receiving help, and you, you, you're talking a little bit about it at the end when you talked about, uh, you know, therapy is okay, you know, this shouldn't be a bad, a bad thing. When it comes to receiving help or the, or, right, the, the, the approach to abuse in terms of how one might be influenced by society, do you see Gen Zers being more susceptible to the influences of society than that lead to uh, some of the abuse of which you speak of um, in ways that maybe millennials haven't? Is there a, is there a change in the way uh, people are impacted? Do you see my my question is? I think so. I think I think I know you. Uh, yeah, so like to put it there. we talk about you know you know, hey, when I was coming up, you know, you you just went to work, put your tie on and, and, and got in there and you didn't you didn't complain. All those stuff was really difficult. You, you know, you just pushed through because, you know, whatever. Or when I came up, you know, you know, your parents disciplined you in this way and it built character. These kids today, you know, they they complain that like we hear all that kind of stuff yeah. all the time. So that's kind of where my question is going when it comes to receiving help. If a person who was a millennial and yeah. you said, hey, look, I want to talk to you about this. Are yeah. they more receptive in ways that maybe Gen Z isn't, or is it the other way around, et cetera? Yeah, no, yeah, I think definitely that, um, you know, the older generation, uh, old, like older millennials and Gen Xers, uh, from what I've seen, it's a little bit harder to get them to accept the fact that they should be warm to therapy Got it. or counseling okay. or going. Yeah. Um, younger millennials and gen zers are like they about it about it in a heartbeat culture is different as yeah. around it yeah yeah okay yeah 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 i think yeah. so and then when you look at i i think when you look at it though from a diversity um standpoint or culture uh like i was saying african-americans latinx mm -hmm. um from my experience and data that i've seen because i mean it's one of the things we're working on now is destigmatizing mental health um, and trying to get that more into the uh, black and brown communities mm -hmm. um, and even natives uh, are included in that um, American Indians is, hey, it's okay to talk about this, right? Um, it's okay to, to unpack it. It's okay to, right. but even more importantly, right, is whatever trauma they may be dealing with, how do we make sure that that trauma doesn't even occur in the beginning that's right um proactive but yes to answer your question there's definitely a huge discrepancy sure. between the uh uh the generations um and i would ask anybody that's uh listening if you do have young people uh listen to them 
learn from them. Um, what they're sharing and you may think is weak or they, they need to pull themselves up, uh, suck it up or whatever word you wanna use, they're actually being a, a good role model for you. Um, because when you're carrying around a lot of stuff, um, some of it trauma, some of it just day-to-day -day experiences and you're just letting that eat you up inside, mm -hmm. um, you're not the best you that you can be. Right, right. I think that's a very profound message. I really appreciate appreciate that. I got one last question for you, man. And you, you, you kind of already got there. So feel free to expand or take it wherever you want to take it. But you and I have this conversation often. Um, you know, I, I present a lot. COVID hit, it dialed back, went to virtual. But I'm, I'm oftentimes in the air a lot of the times. So I had my son during COVID. So that will shift how that looks um, moving forward as well. But my point is, I find myself a lot of conferences. I've had the pleasure of, of passing some uh, around your way yes, because I believe that there is a space in diversity and inclusion for mental health and for a lot of the work that you do. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, man, uh, from the conferences you've gone to, um, from the work that you've done and your growth in DEI in general, do you agree? Do you see that there's a space in DEI for the work that you do? Um, and if so, what does that look like? And what are we missing in this field? What do we need to pay more attention to? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, when I was sharing with you a couple of years ago about what I did, and you're like, oh, man, in a lot of spaces that I go, you know, this is something that's needed. And it was a blind spot for me, because again, you got to remember, I'm working in schools and community. Right. And right, so I'm right, not right. sometimes in certain spaces. And so when you brought it up, I was like, wow, Okay, let me research this a little bit, and uh, with your support um, and and others, I was I did see where, man, this this makes a lot of sense. And the thing is, it was really interesting if you think about it. Three years ago, when you and I first started talking about it, there was no COVID, right? And so right. <laughs> they didn't see the after effects. Right. But here it is, right? And, and that's what I was meaning to say earlier, and maybe I didn't get to it. Was just that everything got accelerated because of COVID. Right. Right. So the issue that you and I were talking about where you saw a, a space for it probably wouldn't have happened for another five, six years. Gotcha. Right. But it gotcha. was COVID that was like, uh-uh, no, oh. there's all these yeah. things happening remote yeah. and work-life balance and uh, yeah. even mental health. Right. And so, yeah. right. Um, I think there's definitely a space for it. I know there's a lot of industry still um, I was talking with, uh, oh man, I forget what, uh, well, in the mining field, for for instance, people that do mining, yeah. um, you know, they have been eating up some of the stuff that we've been, you know, putting towards them because they're like, man, we need this in our, in our uh, field. Um, mm -hmm. Engineers. Right. Um, right, right. Uh, that's who it was. I was talking to a, a woman that uh, is in HR and works with engineers. Mm -hmm. I'm um, supposed to get in touch with her to do some training with them at a particular uh, industry. Right. Uh, where they do this. So yeah, there's definitely space for, I, I think it's about getting the conversation started yeah. and normalizing it mm -hmm. and saying that, you know, when somebody shares that they're feeling some type of way that we automatically don't go to their week. Right. Right. Or they can't handle it. Or, right. You know, um, so I think starting those conversations and having policies that might be around mental health. Um, you know, a lot of times people have sick days as an example of what could be done is why can't people just have a mental health day? That sounds crazy, but sometimes people just need a freaking break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just need a day. I watched, I read something somewhere where someone was like, you know, it's wild to think about the fact that you have to ask your supervisor for a day off. You have to ask, you know, if you think about it in practice, like, hey, I'd like, I'd like to request to stay off um, that you have, right? Already set for you, but you kind of have to ask. And, you know, of course, in one way, it's like, okay, it's, 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 it's less asking, more updating, saying, hey, so, so we can prepare. But, but the culture of asking that using that language for you to take your time for your own self is, is reminding me of what you're saying. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and we all need it. And sometimes, why do I have to be sick? Physically, again, that's a whole physical notion of what we've pushed through the years of just physicalness um, real, it's not being yeah. an issue. But hey, there's things, a lot of things going on in here for people, man, on the mental side that mm -hmm. 
and you, I mean, if you anybody on here that's ever taken just like, you know, a day just to decompress, man, how much better do you feel? So right. I think, we, you know, businesses in general across the board, uh, you know, welcome this type of conversation. And, yeah. and, and, and for those that might be a little hesitant, your bottom line will be better. Right. So if you're worried uh, yes. about the bottom line and this that research has shown over and over, people that are more mentally fresh will produce better for you if you have to look at it, if you need to look at it through that lens. Right. Which um, a lot of folks, unfortunately, do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yo, I appreciate you taking some time out, man, to join us on the chopping block today, baby. Before I let you go, um, how can people get in touch with you, man? Hashtag social media, emails, websites, publications. Yeah, yeah man. If, if people are interested in knowing a little bit what we do and want us to come out and train, hey, we're, we're about about it. Um, uh, Jamal at or J A M A L uh, at L P K N C dot org. That's my email. Um, I know some people, I really had to spell it real quick because some people do Jamal with the H and J-A-M-A-A-L. Two A's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm the original baby. I'm not the number one, <laughs> the way it first came out. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, our website is, you know, www.lpknc.org. You can follow us on uh, Facebook, LPKNC. Uh, just type it in. We're the only ones that pop up. And that's one of the unique things I love about the name. Right. Um, Instagram, yeah. same thing, you know, at LPKNC. So, yeah, that's the way to, to reach us. I'd love to come out and do some trainings around substance misuse prevention if it's for youth. Uh, we do opioid prevention training. Fentanyl is a huge issue across the nation. Mm. We're coming to talk about that. Safe disposal of uh, medics, uh, medications and proper disposal of medications. Um, we talk to youth about just the harmful effects of marijuana nowadays. Uh, just real quick, little plug real quick. You know, marijuana back in the day is not the marijuana of today. THC levels as high as 99%. So, um, you know, that's not good for our youth. So yeah, so hey, hit, hit Jamal up. Get in touch with him. Give you what you need. No. All right, <laughs> I appreciate you fam. Hey. Thank you all for listening for today's episode of The Chopping Block. Sherrod Robbins, Jamal Givens, and you're on The Chopping Block at visceralchange.org.